With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. The presenting sponsor of The Audible is Trader Joe's. Inside Trader Joe's is a five-part podcast series that takes you literally inside Trader Joe's. Go inside the TJ's tasting panel, travel to wineries in Napa Valley, and around the world to discover the next great Trader Joe's products. Discover why they wear those super fashionable Hawaiian shirts. You'll find Inside Trader Joe's on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the latest edition of The Audible. I am Bruce Feldman, joined, as always, by Stuart Mandel. We are taping this Monday morning right after a about an hour-long Urban Meyer press conference where he fielded a lot of questions regarding this whole Zach Smith investigation and all things around it. Do I watched the whole thing on Big Ten Network. I know you didn't get a chance to see the beginning of it. There's a lot we can get through here on this, but really there's one thing I want to start with. Where do you see Urban Meyer's credibility in the wake of all this? His credibility? I mean, I think his credibility took a huge hit, obviously, once that report came out and, and some of the things that were in there. And then in terms of this Tom Renault, you know, this has been, and, and you and I had wondered, like, how was he going to handle this the coming back mid-season? I actually guessed a week ago it would be a, in a Tom Rinaldi sit-down. There was that. There was a statement on Monday morning on Twitter. And then this press conference, which you just, you know, you didn't know if it was going to be, hey, I, I answered all that already. Let's talk football. It really wasn't. It was an hour of almost exclusively questions about this and great questions from the reporters there. And I don't think anything he, I guess, the, I guess what I would say to your question is, if you believed already that his credibility took a major hit during this whole scandal, I don't think he did much at that press conference to win it back. Yeah, I think that the hardest thing for a lot of people to get around, and there's a lot of there's a lot of red flags in this whole thing. I'm not just talking about like the press conference today, which is this whole story. If you want to lump it all together, whether it was what happened at Big Ten Media Day or the text messages, cell phone related discussion with his. Uh, director of football operations. I mean, a lot of the, and, and those things were all brought up. The hardest thing I think for a lot of people to square is at big 10 media days, when urban Myers asked about this back in Chicago, he was the one who brings up he and Shelly, his wife and how they had tried to take this couple under their wing after domestic abuse allegations and back in 2009, when Zach Smith, who Urban Meyer knew well before 2009, but in 2009, when Zach Smith was on Urban Meyer's staff at Florida and how they tried to help them. And then fast forward to 2015, and we've talked and seen, you know, those text messages from from his wife, Shelly, to Courtney Smith and that relationship. And yet they were to believe that. 
Shelly never once shared the level of that with Urban. And to me, that's a head scratcher. Now, is it plausible? Is it is it possible? Yes. It's just, it seems like such a stretch to work off of. And again, what I, what I start with is, I think the you lose the benefit of the doubt when some of these other things are tied into it. There's a lot. There's a lot of things here that seem kind of dubious. That's not to say that I don't believe any of it, but you know, you you go through a lot of this stuff. I mean, one of the first things. Urban Meyer said today was, I want to apologize to you being the, the, the media in front of him for that performance at Big Ten Media Day. There was zero intent to mislead. And I think a lot of people are skeptical of that. And then all of a sudden it's just like, I think that there's a lot of gray area here. And I think we saw a lot of it. And you know, I think I, I look. I give credit to Ohio State for not trying to steer this thing and say no, only football questions or cutting it short. And they gave it. A, he stood up there for an hour, and uh, like, there's a couple of things I I think are, you know, I, I buy. Like towards the end, I think it's Bill Rabinowitz, who, who's a local reporter there, covers Ohio State, had asked him, "What would you say to Courtney Smith?" And Urban kind of walks through it and said, you know, I was, it was a 12, it was 12 hours in, straight in those investigations. And I'd been at home staring at the walls for two weeks and the stress and all this of, of being in the middle of it. And it was emotional because I just got found out I got suspended. And now I'm in front of getting all this rapid fire questions and I didn't handle that well. Well, no, he didn't handle that well. And a couple of days later he came back and you know, I think we issued a statement to say he would apologize to Courtney Smith. But at the same time, I just think there's so much of this where you're looking at it going, man, I don't know. Like, I mean, it's just hard to buy in on all this stuff because you just go back to different elements of it. Why did you not tell Gene Smith about the 2009 incident when this thing all kind of seems to come to a head in 2015? And he just says he really wished he had done more. And I guess, look, uh, I mean, there's no, there's, I think that's one thing I believe. I, I do think he wishes he could have done more and there's no going back on that. You know, you mentioned that one of the things that's actually hardest to believe is that Shelley wouldn't have shared those text messages with him, even the report. And by the way, there's several things in that report that he either contradicted or doesn't agree with including the fact that he still says both Zach and Courtney came to him in 2009 when the report uh, concluded that it was most likely just Zach. Text messages, obviously, much different characterization in the report than what he's saying. And then, of course, he's saying, no, Shelly didn't share those text messages with me. The report said that it was more likely than not that she at least, that there was some sort of communication between them about this. But here's what I think I've come to learn or come to hypothesize. We with the benefit of hindsight, knowing the whole picture, assumed that, I think we can all safely assume, right, that if you, if your wife showed you text messages or told you that, you know, Zach Smith scares me and all of these things, that, that his reaction would have been to fire him. And I think, and he's made it apparent in these, especially in that press conference, that that's, he just didn't see it that way. He, for instance, when he said the police dropped, you know, said there weren't going to be charges, that he took that to mean, quote, there was no domestic violence, right? So even if Shelley shared that stuff with him at the time, I think in his mind, he thought his interpretation of it was that they have a troubled marriage, that they have marital issues. I just don't think he 
and even now I'm not sure, understands that there's a big difference between marital problems, like somebody cheated on somebody, or somebody has alcohol problems, or any number of things, versus putting your hands around somebody's neck, you know, sending threatening text messages, any number of things that have actually come out during this, regardless of a police investigation. So, you know, I think he said it at the time here, I wrote down this quote, I've been accused of this before for giving people second and third chances. I went too far trying to help this man with his issues. So that's what did him in here. He, instead of treating it as a domestic violence situation and um, I need to, this, this guy is dangerous, I need to get him off my staff, he treated it as, I, I see the kids all the time, I've known the family for a long time, I need to help. I need to personally involve myself in this and help stabilize it, as he said. And I just think that um, when you're the head coach of a major, massive program like this, well, that's an admirable goal. First of all, I don't think he's equipped to do it. He's not a marriage therapist. And there's just there's just bigger repercussions here than can I help stabilize the family. This this guy with such a documented is, uh, series of issues, you know, is is representing your university and coaching your receivers and representing the school on recruiting trips, which apparently he's not doing a very good job of at the time. So let me, let me yeah. jump in, Stu. Here's the part where I think it's, again, I, I reference there's a lot of gray area. And I think just from watching this and remembering the, uh, the report that came out after that press conference, whatever it was like th- four weeks ago, you got a lot of gray area and people are like, okay, well, this doesn't square with what the report said and everything like that. And I do think there's a lot of layers to this. And so here's what I want to bring up, which is a thing where I feel like this is a, certainly a, something that I think really Urban Meyer struggles and struggled with. Because I, in one regard, I feel like, and this is somebody who I don't think I know Urban Meyer as well as a lot of other people in the in the media do, but I feel like I know him a little bit and have you know been around him for 15 years. I feel like he's one of these people who deals in black and white and absolutes and how he sees things. And whether you want to reference the Jeremy Fowler, you're a bad guy thing from back when it was Florida days or whatnot. I do think there's, there's a, an element of that. And, and that's how sometimes he's wired to see things. And a lot of times football coaches and maybe even people in general, you know, they look and go, you know, can't they, they categorize things, whether it's they're evaluating people and recruiting can't play just a guy, you know, freak, whatever. There's all these, you know, kind of places people put into, to kind of, to quantify. So he's, I feel like that's a little how he's wired. And yet there was an answer he gave in there today, which was, I made a mistake, not in domestic violence. Where, where I made a mistake was, was in not asking enough questions and in a complete reliance on law enforcement. When you hear no charge, no arrest, how far can you go? And when he says, how far can you go? I think he means as a football coach in the era of Title IX. What do you do next? You can't go out and you can't go out and investigate. And there's an element of that that I think is true, where you have we have the Baylor case, we have the Penn State case, where you know what? It's not your job to investigate. It's the Title IX person's job. It's people. That's not what you're supposed to do. So I can see where some of this stuff got really unwieldy from from that prism. Now, does that mean he sh- when when this stuff comes up in 2015, 
you know, and he said this now, he should have told Gene Smith. And again, some of this seems kind of dubious because there's a lot of other things we're going to have to, 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 to say, yeah, I believe this or no, I don't. But I think with that, again, that prism of, well, Title IX tells me this, and I'm supposed to try, you know, like law enforcement's basically making the decision here. And if, if, if he's, if he's, you know, good, because I think several people brought this up and I think Pat Ford even asked him specifically, do you feel, do you believe Courtney Smith was, was a victim of domestic violence? And Urban Meyer went right back to, well, this is what the, this is what law enforcement or the experts have said, because in his mind, it's like, again, I think you brought this up in your original column back in, in, uh, Chicago, the, the, he said, she said, I don't think he knows how to square it because you're getting into somebody's personal life. You don't know the specifics. So he's like, these are the people who told me, and this is what I'm going to work off of. Again, I think it kind of slides him back into that very black and white definition. And it's messy. I mean, that's about the only thing I can say from it. It's a really big mess. Yeah, I agree with you. He does, he does deal in black and whites. And so you can see where he would say, if the police don't, file charges, then there's no domestic violence. Um, and when we all know it's, there's a lot of, a lot of gray in there, as you said, but I think why a lot of people out there are probably really disappointed today is that, okay, there's one thing to say, Hey, in 2015, you know, I didn't ask the right questions. I didn't have a full understanding of it. I made the wrong decision, which is what he said. You know, he made the wrong decision at the time. Fine. But Pat Forty's asking him in 2018, based on everything you know now, based on those text messages and those pictures and everything that was in that report. Now, do you think she was the victim of domestic violence? And he won't go there. In the Tom Rinaldi interviews and the state, he is, he will not, the farthest he will go is to say he's sorry that she and the family had to go through all this. He won't say he's sorry, you know, he, he won't go to the next step. So I think people are disappointed because here's a chance on a national stage, he has this huge forum to, to, to show compassion for domestic violence and i think he's still in his mind a little confused himself like some people you know speaking of black and white everything on twitter is black and white and so the reaction from a lot of non-ohio state fans this morning on twitter was that he's like basically the the devil incarnate he's evil he's an enabler all those things you know it doesn't have to be that extreme it can just be that i think I think a good word for it is naive. I think he's very naive. He was very naive and still remains pretty naive as to what all goes into domestic abuse and domestic violence. And that played a big part in how he handled this all along. So that, and of course what we said before and what he said in his press conference, he just, he is wired to want to help people. And I wanted to, because of that, I wanted to ask you something. Not every coach is like that. Not every coach is like, you know, has that, oh, I want to, the, the assistants are a family to me. I want to help them out. Some are. I, I want to know how, what percentage or how many coaches out there do you think if they had knew what Urban did about the 2009 situation and then the 2015 situation comes up, how many coaches would have kept him on? How many coaches would have said, oh, I don't want to deal with this headache anymore? You know, I think where we're operating off, if you ask me this question going by 2009 standards, I would say the percentage might be over 50% because you look back through how, how we as society view things now compared to what we did 10 years ago, five years ago, it's changed. Oh, let me clarify. I'm not saying how he handled 2009. I'm saying because 2015 didn't happen in a vacuum, right? 
he knows that something like this happened in 2009. So it comes up again in 2015. The police are investigating. He said that he told him, if you, if you hit her, you're fired. And so nothing comes back to him to indicate that, so he keeps him on. And wants to, instead of, you know, basically, he's saying instead of disciplining him, instead of, uh, you know, putting him out on the street, and I don't want to do that because I think it will too negatively impact the kids and the family. And so I'm asking you, how many coaches would take that kind of compassion over discipline stance and how many would say, no, I'm sorry, one time I was willing to let it go, but twice, you know, you're out of here. You know, I really don't even know how to answer that. I mean, I get now what you're asking. I don't know. You know, I feel like I know a bunch of football coaches. I don't know them well enough to know how they would handle that. And quite honestly, some of the ones I'm thinking about would be because this is not acceptable or because when this gets out, it you know, I could get fired for this and I don't want to be accountable for this other person. Because, you know, on one hand, we're talking about who, how many of the guys are Urban Meyer at Florida who, who gave multiple opportunities to talented players and would do that and i think there's a big big percentage of them look i think baylor and art briles happened because of giving a lot of opportunity to to uh to some shaky character guys the one thing i would add which makes this especially unique to coaching is the relationship between zach smith zach smith's family and urban meyer this is not the ordinary if this was some other position coach I do think Urban Meyer would never have brought this guy back. I, and I think that colored it more than anything else. I think his loyalty to the guy who gave him his break, big break in coaching, and I think ultimately that's why we're, why, why, we're, we're, why everybody's been waiting through this for the last two months. Yeah, there's no question about that, and maybe that's why he felt like he should try to stabilize the marriage, you know, family loyalty standpoint. But when you're a manager or CEO type, there's a liability issue that needs to be constantly in the back of your mind. Now, just based on what came out in that report and what he would have known, even even without the domestic violence um, investigation that didn't result in charges, you know, we know that he... Can I quick jump in? I don't think football coaches, certainly not in 2009, probably not in 2015, and doubtful right now in 2018, view themselves as quote-unquote managers. Well, they should. But they, I don't think they do. And I know I'm almost positive they didn't, you know, back in 2015 or certainly 2009. Look, you may be right, but, uh, you know, all of these recent scandals, if they haven't already, should be your clue that if you're the head coach of a college football program with now with all the support staff and whatever, you're, you are the manager of 140 or 150 people, the players, the assistants, the analysts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you have, you know, the fans are almost like the shareholders, right? Like you're accountable to the whatever, 100,000 people in the stadium, the millions of people who follow you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So with all that in mind, if you've got an assistant on your staff who was documented to have been showing up late to meetings, not going on recruiting trips that he said he was going to go on, having those credit card issues, um, and obviously what he knew of the, the marriage, you know, at some point you have to say, this is too much of a liability for the company. Uh, this could end up costing me my job or causing a huge scandal for the program. As much as I'm loyal to Earl Bruce and I want to help this family, like this is just too big a liability for Ohio State football. And, and what I heard today 
was that that's not what was on his mind in 2015. What was on his mind was these kids, I see them every week, his two kids, they come to the office, they're these beautiful kids, and I don't want to do anything that would mess it up for them. If anything, I want to be the guy who helps, you know, save their family. And uh, we'll see. I mean, this, this should be a huge wake-up call to everybody. There was a moment in the press conference where somebody asked him a very serious question about credibility of Zach and Courtney Smith, and then that same person followed up by asking him, quote, how much better do you think this offense can be? Which left me and a lot of people laughing. But we need to make a similar transition here because there was a lot of college football played over the weekend, and we don't want it to get lost in the uh, Urban Meyer story. So where should we begin? You know, I don't want to get into the Big Ten just yet because we're going to talk about that in a minute. Jim, Why don't we start uh, with your with Coach O? Back to the podcast in a second. Hey, Bruce, after two disastrous weeks, I finally had a, a good picks against the spread this week, eight and three. Uh, Man, you were due, Stu. You I were was, due. I was due. If I were to use our new sponsor, I guess I would have made some money this week. Our new sponsor is BetDSI.com. They've been paying winners for 20 years, top rated on all the betting review sites. So use your sports knowledge to make some extra cash. Go online or use their easy-to-use mobile site. They have the fastest payouts in the industry. They offer betting options for everything. Bet on football, but also all other major sports, politics, reality TV, esports, virtually everything. Maybe we could bet on whether you're what you're going to order at dinner next week. Try live betting at BetDSI, where you can bet on every play, every drive, and every score until the final whistle blows. You Use promo code AUDIBLE18. First time deposits, Bruce, get a hundred percent bonus match on your money up to five hundred dollars. So once again, go to betdsi.com, use promo code Audible18, and get this limited time hundred percent bonus up to five hundred dollars. It's only a game until you bet it at BetDSI. Okay. All right. So I uh, over the weekend, it was a game I actually didn't get a chance to see because it was opposite our game, uh, our Houston-Texas Tech game. But uh, look, Ed Ogeron's proved a lot of people wrong, I think. And I did a column uh, Sunday that went up Sunday night on The Athletic about what he's done to really change and get the program cranked up. And here's the reality, because I think I've had this you know, I feel like I know Ogeron probably better than anybody in the media just from working on Meat Market. But I've told people this, and I've written about it before. He is nowhere near the same coach who was the guy who was at Ole Miss. And if you don't know that by now, you're just stuck in. You just can't get past his his accent. I mean, because here's the numbers: since he was since he left Oxford, he is 24 and eight as a head coach, and now he's four and two against top 10 opponents. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, and, I agree with you. It's been really puzzling. You know, we talk sometimes about how it's hard to overcome a bad first impression. For instance, and we'll talk about this later, Willie Taggart is going to have an awful, awful hard time digging out of the first impression he's caused at Florida State. And just people couldn't get over the Ole Miss time and where he was, you know, the, the story about him you know, ripping off his shirt. Like, he just became a caricature to people. And they just couldn't see that, you know, I remember the year at USC, the interim year at USC, they beat Stanford. Stanford went on to win 11 games and go to the Rose Bowl that year. They were uh, a top five team when they beat Stanford that two, night. And by the way, they did it with with like one sub on defense. Two years ago I mean, is when he took over for Les Miles in a really, uh, you know, a really not ideal situation. 
the offense was terrible. By the end of the year, they were putting up 50-something points on A&M. They beat Lamar Jackson in a bowl game. Like, he is not the Ole Miss guy who was the coach at Ole Miss, and yet, as recently as two, three, you know, two weeks, I would say before the Miami game, there was still a lot of, this guy can't coach, a lot of mocking. Now he's beating two top 10 teams in three weeks. I just don't think people have spent any time to actually like see what's going, see what he, you know, see what he's done. I mean, if you look, so it's funny because like the thing that he was always known for was that he was a great recruiter and he was a great evaluator on offense, just on the starters. They had seven guys who, who have come in in the last year and a half. So they were not the less miles guys. So, and his big thing is he told me was, look, we're going to trust our evaluations. We're not chasing stars, not to say that Les Miles necessarily did, but he was like, you know, we're going to trust our evaluations. We're going to put a premium on toughness and character, their attitude and their athleticism. And he points to a guy like Damian Lewis, who for some reason was only a three-star guard. And you talk to James Craig, who's now their offensive line coach, who came from the, from the Chargers in the NFL. He goes, if that guy was on our team last year, he would have played. Like, he would be playing. And to say that a, a kid who's, whatever, 20 years old would have been an NFL starting offensive lineman, you know, speaks to the talent. And Auburn, Miami had a really good defense. They had led the country in sacks the year before. I think they're going to be high on the, you know, they're going to be really nasty on defense again this year. And Auburn on the road is a tough place to play. They'd won 13 in a row. Their defense is big and nasty. And in the middle of that game, and I think this is like a detail that you know I kind of got into in the column. They lose their their vocal leader on the offensive line, Garrett Brumfield, and a, and Chasen Hines, who had never played in a college game but was recruited as a defensive lineman, a true freshman, steps in and plays really well. And again, they're you know I'm not saying they're going to beat Alabama. I'm not saying that they're going to be a top five team, but. Right now, they are the story of the of the early college football season to see what they've done. No question. And the interesting thing is they're doing it. So, so Joe Burrow was seen as the guy who, if they're going to have a great season, you know, he's going to be their savior. He's going to come in and be the quarterback they've never had before, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, I think we can all agree, like he's been a good, steadying presence in this three game streak. And yet, he's if you look at his just his stats. You'd be like, hey, what's the big deal? He's completing less than 50% of his passes. It's well, like, I think you got to keep in mind, though, like when we see stats for the first three weeks of the season, yeah, they played a weak team in week two. They played two of the best defenses in the country, and neither game happened in Baton Rouge. Those are not pad your stat games against those guys. Do you feel better? I mean, before the season, you yourself were in uh, Yeah, two. I thought they were a seven and five. I did not think he was a, on the hot seat guy. Right. I thought that. Honestly, I thought the issue that they would struggle with was they did not have Darius Geis or Daryl Williams or certainly not Leonard Fournette back there. Nick Brosette was unproven guy. Well, he stepped up in the, you know, he's performed really well. I think the offensive line where they didn't have any depth last year has shown that they've recruited well and they've developed guys. I still think they're, even after winning the first couple of games, I, I think that they're probably. I don't know, a nine-win team? I don't think they can... They're going to have a stretch. So you think they're going to lose... Who? Which three games at this point would you say they're going to lose to? I Look, so here's a stretch they have in midseason. They have three successive games. Georgia, Mississippi State, and Alabama. If they win one of those games, even though all three are in Baton Rouge, 
I think that would be a pretty strong accomplishment. I could see them losing all three. I suspect they may lose two of those three. And then when you start getting into, they could stumble someplace else. They got to play Texas A&M, who we see, as you've seen personally, you know, in person, they're no pushover. So I, it's it's a they, it's a pretty rough schedule. And again, I think Joe Burrow has played well. I mean, to me, he's kind of like a more athletic version of Danny Etling. He doesn't turn the ball over, which they haven't turned the ball over yet. And you do that, no matter you know, no matter how. Uh, modest your offensive stats are when you have a really good defense you have a good chance to win games and i think as long as they do that i think they're going to be in a lot of these games but i think they're probably a a nine win team i think next year's the team where i think they do make a run potentially at the playoff but i think right now i think they're they're better than people expected i still think that they're they're not ready to overtake alabama though i just don't see that well I'm not, I don't think anybody's ready to overtake Alabama. And so I'm going to just say that I have Alabama going 12 and 0. And I don't think that's really a shocking thing to say right now. No. But somebody else in the West is going to be a 10 or probably 10 win team. I thought it would be Auburn, but Auburn just lost. Mississippi State. Well, could it still be Mississippi State? You know, I know the Kansas State's not a great team that they played and beat, but like their offense is a machine right now. And people are starting to think. Maybe they're that team that can sneak up and be that team. You know, Auburn has to play at Georgia and at Alabama at the end of the year. So if, if you're saying somebody's going to be nine and three, it's probably that's probably their their best case scenario. A and M, even with the the you know near upset of uh, Clemson, is a twenty four point underdog against Alabama this week. I mean, LSU to me now is the number two team in that division. Well, look, they've they've accomplished the most yeah. certainly this year. So from that standpoint. Yeah, I think it's, uh, look, right now the SEC has been the one conference, you know, Florida embarrassing itself, you know, against Kentucky, notwithstanding, at least that's an in-conference game, has been the one conference that I think has shined. You start going through this where the Big Ten, and we'll get into this in a second, had an awful weekend. The Pac-12 has really struggled. I think that the ACC with Florida State looking so shaky and Miami losing you know, by double by two touchdowns to LSU on a neutral field, that's not a good thing. But I circle around to the SEC where Georgia keeps flexing, flexing its muscle. Alabama looks absolutely dominant. And as you said, you know, even Texas A&M in a loss, that's about as good a loss as you could have. So, okay. So do let you me think give you, let me throw a stat at you real quick about that. Okay. Everybody loves to mock the SEC scheduling, but the SEC is six and three against power five teams so far. That is they're the only Power 5 league with a winning record against other Power 5 conferences, although shout out to the American, which is also above 500. But anyway, 6-3 and three against Power 5, and only one of those games was a home game. So I don't know what, you, what more they could do to prove themselves at this early point in the season. And yeah, you know, there's some mediocre teams for sure in the east side of it. But for the most part, what the SEC hasn't had is embarrassing losses, with one exception, Arkansas. Arkansas has had two of them, and Arkansas is terrible. But the rest of the conference has mostly avoided embarrassing non-conference losses. The Big Ten on Saturday set a record seven losses to unranked teams. That's the most non-conference games. That's the most they've ever had since the AP poll was invented. And that included Akron winning at Ryan Field. That included Troy going to Nebraska and knocking off the Huskers. It's just... Wisconsin, obviously, was the big one losing at home to BYU. I feel like there was a period there four or five years ago where they had a weekend like this almost every year. 
And then they had these past few years where it felt like, okay, the conference is getting stronger. They've hired great coaches. They're closing the gap. And now I feel like that ship has sailed. Uh, this has been a rough, rough start for the Big Ten. Aberration, or do you think this is this is real? Well, some of them, you know, you can read into some results more than others. I mean, I think Wisconsin losing at home to BYU was a was a tough, tough one for the conference because that was seen as a you know Wisconsin was seen as a prime playoff contender, and this wasn't you know this wasn't them going on the road and losing to this wasn't Michigan State going on the road and losing to Arizona State. This was losing at home to BYU, who by the way looks really good, much improved over last year, but they should win that game, you know, and then of course, Michigan State did lose at ASU. That's a, that's a, you know, a chance to, that, that's not a game Michigan State should have lost, frankly, if they, by the way, that loss, that loss be. looks a little bit worse now that San Diego State went in there and, and, and beat the, uh, beat the Sun Devils as well. That is true, though, San Diego State clinched that game on what may be, as David Ubbins said on Twitter, the first ever game winning targeting penalty. That was like, I hope, I don't know how many people got to see that. It ended at like 2.30 in the morning Eastern, but that was the strangest, most Pac-12 dark ending to a game you could possibly ask for. Yeah, I ended up watching on my computer and it was very, you know, I don't know. We don't want to go into this. <laughs> no, we're not going to go into great detail about the ending of the ASU San Diego I was, game. Even I would just encourage just people... The, yeah, just the, the fumble, it. the fumble that like from the San Diego State running back, backup running back after he gets a first down, and then he's stripped, and it's like reviewed, and um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of pieces to the just, to that. Just that go game. watch if you haven't seen it. The the play at the end of the game, Arizona State was down two touchdowns. They cut it to seven points. Then San Diego State, like you said, the guy has the first down to like end the game, and he fumbles. So Arizona State gets one more chance. They throw a long pass downfield. Uh, he catches it, then the defender blatant targeting, and after review, they decided it was actually an incomplete pass. And if it was, it was barely an incomplete pass if he didn't have control of it. But the reason he didn't have control of it, it was because a guy rung his bell and got called for targeting for it. Go find that. That's a separate thing. Anyway, back now to I the think Big the Ten. Big Ten, back to the Big Ten. Well, if you remember, in 2014, everybody was mocking the Big Ten, and then Ohio State ended up winning the national championship. I would think you would agree that one of the probably two most viable national championship contenders in that conference is Ohio State. What were your takeaways from the TCU game? TCU was super fast. I think anybody who saw that watched as I think Draymond Jones said, this is the fastest team we've played since I've been there. And not only has, has he faced Oklahoma, he faced a Clemson team that uh, I think that was your Clemson went on to win the national title, right? That speaks volumes of what Gary Patterson's done there. I thought that Dwayne Haskins was very impressive. He's a, you know, he was in my top three this week on our athletic Heisman uh, list. I thought he was he did a good job. It was a good game. I thought TCU gave them a good game. There was two defensive touchdowns that, that ultimately were the difference. And I think Ohio State's defense, even with Nick Posa getting knocked out of the game, and we understand that he's going to be out this week for their Tulsa game as well. Tulane. I just think that I thought it was a great game. I really did. I thought it was a fun, it was a fun, entertaining game with a lot of speed on the field. By the way, TCU 511 yards of offense against Ohio State. That's the most the Buckeyes have given up in a game in four years. So it was it was fun. I was watching that as well as the Texas USC game at the same time, and it was just uh, I don't know. I felt like one one game looked like teams that were legit 
top <laughs> 10 teams, and the other ones were like, I don't even think they were top 25 teams. I mean, for all the hype that your network gave to that Texas-USC game and it being like the, the trilogy going back to the national championship, uh, it really looked like a J. If you flipped between them, it looked like the JV game to the TCU-Ohio State game, where you're right. It was just speed all over the field on both sides of the on both sides of that. And really, if you look at the stats and if you watch the game, it felt like a really even game that turned on two huge uh, defensive touchdowns for Ohio State. And so I guess what I was going to ask is, you mentioned the 511 yards. If you're projecting Ohio State going forward, they play at Penn State in a couple weeks, do you feel like, well, they got Nick Bosa, they got Draymond Jones, you know, they're going to be fine? Or do you go, wait a minute, secondary, the linebackers didn't play particularly well. Are they... Are they going to have to outscore the better teams on their schedule this year because they don't necessarily have that dominant shutdown defense that they've had pretty much every year before this under Urban Meyer? I don't know. Like I said, this is a really fast team they played. They're going to get Penn State in a couple of weeks, right? And yeah. Penn State has, especially if they don't have Nick Bosa, that would uh, that would hurt, I think. Trace McShorley is a a fantastic quarterback. He's further along, certainly than Sean Robinson, TC's quarterback was. I don't know. I, I think there's nobody in the Big Ten that is that is you know so much better than everybody else, where they're not touchable. I think Penn State has the firepower to do damage. Who knows what what Michigan's offense looks like? You know, once they've had a, a full season to get ready for for that game. So I, I would be concerned. But they went up against a really fast team that hit some big plays on them. And, and TCU has some guys. I think I had like three guys on TCU on my freaks list. They have guys who will run away from anybody. You know, Darius Anderson, if he's out in front of you, you know, Ohio State has Kendall Sheffield. He can really fly too. I mean, it, there's no shame in not walking down a guy like that or some of the athletes that TCU has. I just don't think, you know, sometimes, and this is a little bit of an odd transition, but just seeing what Pat Mahomes is doing in the NFL right now. I mean, they, those big 12 games that are crazy shootouts. Like we had one this weekend in Lubbock when sometimes when those guys play outside of their conference or outside of their league, that it turns into a big 12 kind of game. I mean, I think it says a lot about those offenses and some of the, how, how well they execute and how talented they are as much as anything else. I'm going to make a statement right now and I want to hear if you agree or disagree. It's only three weeks into the season, and yet I already feel like there are only five teams capable of winning the national championship. Alabama, Georgia, Oklahoma, Ohio State, and Clemson. Can you give me sound effects to do that, too? Sorry, somebody decided to do a flyover. I guess maybe there's a football game about to start. Maybe some flyover uh, right over my house right now. I felt like you would have said that same thing two months ago, except you wouldn't have included Oklahoma. Uh, like I feel like people have been saying some version of that, but not not including Oklahoma if, towards that. I might have included uh, Auburn. I might have included Washington. So what's new? Well, the, the the list is being whittled down. But there is one. Well, I guess the one team I thought maybe you were going to jump up and and say, "How dare you, sir?" Was Penn State. No, I don't think Penn State's good enough on defense to like. I think Trace McSorley's terrific. I don't think they're good. Honestly, I don't think they're good enough on the lines, both lines, to win the national title. So they here's, could, what, I'm, here's they what I'm getting get at. They could get there. I yeah. don't think they could do that, though. They I don't think the their program's ready. So here's what I'm getting at. I think we can agree that they are at least capable of knocking off Ohio State at home in a couple mm-hmm. of weeks where, you know, if you the last two times Ohio State went there, they lost two years ago, 2014, really close game. 
that Joey Bosa sack ended up deciding it. But I kind of agree. That doesn't mean they're going to go on and win the national title. So does that mean if Penn State beats Ohio State that the, the Big Ten will basically be, they will need one of those teams to run the table from there or they're screwed? I think it's way too, like I think it's way too soon to say that. We just don't know. I mean, that's the instinct, but I think you could easily get a let's say Wisconsin runs the table. Wisconsin has a pretty has a much tougher schedule on paper right now than they did last year. And if they beat a undefeated Penn State or Ohio State in the Big 10 title game, even losing to BYU, I think they would have a good chance to make the playoff. But what if Wisconsin doesn't make it out of Iowa City unscathed this week? And Iowa's the team that comes out? Comes out of the West. Well, Iowa, who's, who's, who's Iowa losing to? Who do you have them losing that's to? That's the thing. If Iowa be, wins, that's the thing. If Iowa, who, by the way, has the number two defense in the country right now, beats Wisconsin this week, it could be just like 2015. Like, you look at their schedule and go, oh, man, well, who, would they, who could they lose to after that? Although Minnesota playing well in the Big Ten West, nobody else is. I want to get to some mailbag questions, but first, you've got Texas TCU this week. By the way, so Iowa, let's give them a little credit here. Iowa does have to play at Penn State. That's oh, yeah. not an easy game. So let's let's not like crap all over their schedule while we're doing it. But if Iowa beats Wisconsin, loses at Penn State, finishes 11-1 and one and goes to Big Ten title game, they're going to be playing for a playoff spot. Quick, you cannot Google anything. Do you know who's leading the Big Ten West right now? I do. They're a team that's one and two overall. <laughs> well, they're the only yeah. ones that have played a Big Ten game, right? Well, they're the only ones that won a Big Ten game. I mean, Purdue lost that game. Yeah, Northwestern. That, that great two. Thursday one night opener. Two. That great one Thursday two. night opener between Northwestern and Purdue. Neither one has won a game since. What is up with your alma mater? Well, you know, they've had these. This is not an unusual thing for Pat Fitzgerald. I don't know if they need to reevaluate their like preseason camps or if they're just terrible at preparing for non-conference teams. But like two years ago, they lost to Western Michigan and then one of the directional FCS Illinois schools that I can't, which one's coached by Brock Spack? Well, Eastern? He's Southern, he's Southern? Southern Illinois, I think. That's so. It, so they lost to that team and they almost Eastern got shut Illinois out. Eastern Illinois was the school Dino Babers and uh, Jimmy Garoppolo. Yeah, and then to. they almost got shut out by that team and it looked like they were going to, might not win a game in the Big Ten and they ended up going to a bowl game. And beating Pitt. So, and they've had other embarrassing non-conference losses and gone on to have a good season. So I don't know what it is. So I wouldn't necessarily rule out that they turn around and still have an okay season, but not off to a great start. Purdue is 0-3. They, give them a little credit, though. It took last-second field goal for Missouri to uh, get out of West Lafayette unscathed. By the way, just, the just to clarify, Brock Spack is the coach at Illinois State. Illinois State. My bad. My apologies. Brock Spack was the defensive coordinator at Purdue under Joe Tiller. Had he a great mustache. Has had an all-time great, memorable mustache. mustache. Yes. And just such a football coach name, don't you think? Absolutely. Uh, Texas. Okay. Thoughts? Uh, do you well, look? We got our crew has TCU hosting uh, TCU going to Texas this weekend. It's an interesting interesting game because as we both said, TCU looked impressive in a loss to Ohio State. Texas is opening week loss to Maryland. D- looks even worse right now because Maryland laid an egg against Temple. But Texas blew out USC, and I think one one thing that did stand out like Texas won that game going away. Now was it a real big step? Or was it just one small step in, a, in an uphill climb? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it continues to, could continue to be kind of an up-and-down season like that. To me, that was more a referendum on just how bad USC is. And it's just it's going to be a rough, rough year for the Trojans and a rough, rough year for Clay Helton. But if Texas turns around and beats that TCU team that we just sung the praises of, then you know expectations are going to be that much higher, are going to be much, much higher than I would have had certainly going into the season and even and, and even much more so after the Maryland game. Uh, one more quick thing before the mailbag. Have you ever seen a kind of brand name program have a worse, more incompetent offensive line than Florida State? It looked really bad. I watched that Syracuse game. Man, they just, uh, they were, DeAndre Francois is not going to hold up to the Clemson game, much less the season with this, the way he it's got, set up. He got pissed at one point. He didn't want to, he didn't want the offensive lineman to help him up. They've got a guy, they've got a guy, so it's a lot of things, and frankly it's baffling to me, but they do, I think they're down three starters already from from what was already a, a pretty mediocre offensive line. And they've got guys out there who probably wouldn't start for a Sunbelt team. And Syracuse, you know, I'm a big Dino guy. I, I definitely think he's going to get things uh, in the right direction there. They did this, by the way, even with Eric Dungy out for the second half. But one thing I don't think anybody would say is that Syracuse is a great defensive team, and they just absolutely dominated Florida State. Yeah, I mean this is going to be a this is going to be a more of a rebuild than I think a lot of us thought. Maybe you you were more open to it than I was because they barely made a bowl game last year. Uh, I thought they had more talent than this. They and do, but it's on defense. It is. I mean Brian Burns and some of those guys can really roll, but they they're also. You know, as bad as the offensive lines played, they've been sloppy too. And I think when your talent level isn't what it's people had expected it to, and you're coming out of, you're kind of in the rebuild mold, you got to be sharper and, and cleaner. I think that's really, you know, they are shooting themselves in the foot more times than they can handle on top of that. And I think that's hard for them to get momentum. And uh, if you look at the rest of their schedule, so tell me what you think. Florida State is going to finish now after one and two and really struggling with an FCS team to get that. Well, first one. of all, even despite being off to this unbelievably terrible start, they're an 11 point favorite at home this week against NIU. Yeah. I mean, what's what's noteworthy here is when you look at their their schedule, it's not going to be easy for them because after this week at Louisville, at Miami, then they play Wake Forest, who's not awful. Then they got Clemson. Then they got at NC State. Then they got at Notre Dame. Then they got the BC team you think has a chance to, to make the playoff. And then they got their arch rival, Florida. You have to remember, teams do improve. What you see in the first three weeks doesn't necessarily what they'll be in October or November. So I'm not going to say, oh, they never win another game. But, I mean, I think the best case scenario is probably like 4-8. and eight. I, think the best, I think best case scenario for them is somehow they get to six wins. Six um, wins, huh? Yeah, I think that team back. that you've seen the first three weeks is going to turn around and win six games. Go ahead, tell me which six. Uh, it's five. You need five more. Uh, I'll give them NIU. Mm-hmm. I will give them home to Wake Forest. I will give them NC State. I will give them home against BC and Florida because I think they will get better by the end of the year. They will get better by the end of the year, but so will Florida probably. And BC, after watching that Wake Forest game, no, I'm not putting them in the playoff, but that offense is really good. And, uh, I mean, I think they're the second, they're definitely the second best team in that division. 
I'm not necessarily going to say they're better than Miami or Virginia Tech yet. But Adazio's team is the second best team in that division. I do have one huge concern for them, though. They may have the worst punting unit in the entire country. Thank God you did not say special teams because that would have presented all sorts of problems and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Can you imagine how awkward it would be? And he's talking about Joe Tess's son as the kicker for the Eagles. Can you I, imagine? Might dri- I might drive up, I might drive into the barrier, punch you in the eye myself. But can you imagine how that. awkward it would be if he were the punter? Like, how would we even talk about it? Anyway, Let's the, 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 the punter's Let's averaging like 35 yards a punt and then they've had... Uh, they've given up three touchdowns on either blocked punts or a dropped snap. So, come on, Steve Adazio, you need to work on that. Okay, uh, email. Send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. Oh, we already answered this first one about can Wisconsin, if Wisconsin runs the table, do they make it to the playoff? Yes, they would make it to the playoff. I think we can agree with, on that. Hello, guys. Uh, love the show. Alabama's offense has been incredible so far this year. Tua is the best Alabama quarterback since whom? Could it be Ken the Snake Stabler? Wow. Uh, so that would that would be he is the best quarterback of our time covering the sport. That's that's what that would be right now. Who would you have said before him? So you don't want to try to answer best since? Joe Namath is in there somewhere. You know, it's not even like I gotta be honest. I don't know. Well enough. Like I, I know. I remember. I remember. I don't remember Joe Namath as a Jets player, but I mean, I know Joe Namath was a football legend. I don't know how great Joe Namath was at Alabama, off the top of my head. Well, in Bear Bryant's offense, I don't think they. Well, look, nobody put up stats the way quarterbacks put up stats now. But like what I'm, I mean, yeah, that. I don't know if Ken Stabler was better. I don't know if Bart Starr was better. Like I just, uh, off the top of my head, I don't know that. By the uh, by the way, is Andy Davis with that question. And I'm going to say, let me look up Joe Namath. Okay, you want to hear Joe Namath's college stats? Sure. He played three years, and he completed uh, 54.3% of his passes for, this is his three-year total now, 2,713 yards, 24 touchdowns, and 20 interceptions. Yeah, here's the, here's the problem with some of this stuff. It is so skewed. I'm going to rattle off the top 10 uh passing leaders of in Alabama history. They're all almost all guys who have been around in our in our careers. Yeah, I mean, I think three. the answer before it would be AJ McCarron, right? It goes AJ McCarron, John Parker Wilson, Brody Croyle, Andrew Zhao, McElroy, Jay Barker, Scott Hunter, who was before us, but I remember him a little bit in the NFL. Jalen Hurts, Freddie Kitchens, and Walter Lewis, who I remember as a as a kid watching some. I'm going to make the, this might get me on the hot take hall of fame, but three, oh, don't do it. I, three I know and a half you're games going. into his career, Tua is already the best quarterback Alabama's ever had. All right, fine. Uh, I, He's the look, best quarterback in the sport right now. Can we say, can I, school that can I doesn't usually have star quarterbacks? He's the most talented quarterback that Alabama's He's the most had talented quarterback, obviously. Since yeah. I don't since as most talented quarterback they've had since I've covered the sport. I don't want to go past nineteen ninety. It's the most Ever. talented quarter. He is he is you know headed on the track to be all American slash Heisman candidate slash. So he's more talented than Joe Namath or Ken Stabler. That's more right. talented. Guys, uh, you've studied up close. You've spent hours studying their <laughs> film, 
in a dark room at three in the morning with a cup of coffee and a and a, and a pack of Newports by Part your side. Part of it is yes. that just college players in general are more physically gifted than they were in the nineteen sixties. I mean, let's let's be honest. I mean, does that mean he's like that Athlon list we did about fifty greatest. Do you remember how hard it was to compare current guys to guys? From I'm sorry. Years? If this is the part where you tell me Eric Dungey's more talented than Jim Brown, we're going to end this podcast right now. That is such a strange. Where did you even come <laughs> up with that? Because we were talking Syracuse, and you're just crapping all over guys from like the '60s and '70s and '50s, and you know sometimes generational talents are generational talents. So Tua is a generational talent. By the way, this is coming from somebody who was not ready to buy into the hype after just the national championship game. It was one half. Let's see how he does after that. The guy, you know what the most incredible Tua stat is right now? Let me load up Chris Vanini's always excellent 19 stats from the weekend so I can get this right. You ready for this? Just about. Tua, on third downs this season, is 13 for 13 for 298 yards and six touchdowns. On third downs. Yes, I think I had that stat in my column last week. You Do you think there's any... Now, before I get too far <laughs> ahead of myself, is there any possibility that he's going to be the Geno Smith, annual Geno Smith, September, October Heisman winner of the year? Meaning that he falls apart or that he doesn't win it? Uh, not that he doesn't win it. I mean, Geno Smith went from... Fell off the radar. Yeah, he was like Saquon, Saquon didn't win it last year, and he was he was running away oh, it's with it. Oh, the kiss of death to be the considered the Heisman frontrunner at this point in the season. Kiss of death. But just because you win the he- don't win the Heisman doesn't mean you're not the best quarterback in Alabama history. From John in San Jose. Hmm. Spelled J O N. You think it's John Wilner? No, my best friend is a, was a J O N too growing up. So as a USC, oh, it's definitely not John Wilner. As a USC alum and fan, I am embarrassed. embarrassed by USC's lack of discipline. Recent years show that Sam Darnold saved Clay Helton's job. Didn't Clay Helton recruit and develop Sam Darnold? Should we get a little bit of credit for that? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Clay, Clay Helton seems reluctant to change. Should USC cut ties with him at the end of the season, regardless of how it plays out? That's a good question. I think they might do that, but because I don't know how supportive Lynn Swan really is, and I think some of the former players who carry a lot of clout at USC, I think they're not thrilled with the direction of the program. I think people like Clay Hilton as a very decent man and they respect that, especially in the wake of all the kind of childish immaturity stuff that they waded through for the previous like five years. But I wouldn't be shocked if, if they don't get it going that they made a change. Do I think they should? I don't know. I mean, I, I think once you hire a guy, I think it's hard. I think it's you got to give him more time, and he's got a true freshman quarterback. I mean, I don't know. The program to me is is I I don't know. I I just think you got to give him more than three years, especially when he's had two successful years. But you're the same person who thinks he's not one of the forty best coaches in the country. So I don't. But once you but once you hired him, I think you have to give him a chance to have his players develop in the program and the direction he's going in. I don't think he's one of the 40 best coaches. I think he's one of the 40 best guys, if I had to rank him. But, well, shouldn't um, USC have – you're USC. Shouldn't you aspire to have one of the top 10 coaches in the country, much less top 40? Yeah, but they didn't, they didn't wait for Chip Kelly. They, didn't, they, didn't, they couldn't figure out a way to get Chris Peterson comfortable enough to come to L.A. Like, they didn't do that. So now once you – I think – and maybe this, is just, maybe this is why I don't manage people. 
Um, I think if you have something, you're not really sure that it's exactly the right thing, but you've had a lot of positive, you know, look, Clay Helton did a really nice job in the first two years. It's going to be a rocky 2018, but does that mean you completely pull the plug and just don't give them a chance to coach out of it? Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think it's a cut and dry. We have to see where they are at the end of the year for one thing. But, you know, I thought uh, Andy Staples wrote an excellent column about this Monday morning uh, comparing his situation to that of Jim McElwain at Florida, where Jim McElwain won, you know, back-to-back SEC East titles, and it seemed like he actually, you know, the confidence grew less and less during that time. Clay Helton, Rose Bowl win in 2016, Pac-12 title in 2017. But the problem is he keeps getting embarrassed in these big non-conference games. As I wrote yesterday, uh, he's now 3-5 and five in Power 5 non-conference games. Now, one of those was the win over Penn State in the Rose Bowl, so let's give credit for that. But 3-5 mm-hmm. and five against non-conference Power 5 teams, and four of those five losses have been by 17 points or more. That's just unacceptable at USC. The other problem is, so, so here's where is the conundrum. It's like you said, after the debacles that were Lane Kiffin and Steve Sarkeesian, you finally have a guy who has stabilized things, who does things the right way, uh, is not causing controversies, and that's really important for USC. And so I don't think anybody wants to, in the administration, just wants to run that guy off. But you're also at a school, and here's where I think he's probably doomed, that when the team is really good, like it was under Pete Carroll, they sell out the LA Coliseum. And when the team is not even necessarily bad, but mediocre, there's 50,000 people in there. This is not like uh, Ohio State or Alabama where they're going to show up every week regardless. So that's a, that's a lot. You know, if you go into next, let's say they go seven and five or even eight and four, and you go into next season and nobody there has any confidence that this program is going to win a national championship under him, I mean, the, you lo- you're just not going to have any support. And so I think that's where he's in trouble. They need somebody who makes people want to come out and cheer on the Trojans every week because they think this guy is our guy. Do you, do you think altogether, though, that, like, what, what does it take to stabilize that? What does it take to stabilize what? To get people to, to think differently about, about, about him. You got to win big games. I mean, you got to win I'm, big I'm games. But I'm saying is it, like, if Notre Dame comes in there and they beat Notre Dame, I think that what you're saying, and I'm not disagreeing with you much, but I think him winning a big game or him winning two, like, I'm not sure, short of Clay Helton going to the playoff, I don't think it's ever going to be good enough for USC fans with him. Well, why don't we just compare it real quick to Ed Ogeron, who I think a lot of LSU fans went into the season feeling pretty pessimistic about. But again, that's a place where they're going to show up anyway. Well, what's different Uh, to me here, Stu, is, and I'm not saying the bar is lower, but USC is the powerhouse um, in the Pac-12. It's not even close. So as people who've worked there have said, you got to F it up to not win big at USC. Whereas if you're the head coach at LSU or you're Jimbo Fisher or you're Gus Malzahn, you got Nick Saban in your league and you got a bunch of other guys who are heavyweights and it's real aggressive recruiting and it's, it's, you're, in, you're in the deep end of the pool. And that's just getting out of the West, much less winning, the, winning you know, beating Georgia now. So, so I, wait, I have I, to take exception to something you said there. Or to, it wasn't something you said. It's what this coach said to you. You have to really mess it up not to win big there. Since John McKay, who besides Pete Carroll has won big there? Pete Carroll did. And yeah. I think that's so it must point. be pretty hard if only one guy in the last 
well, uh, I think the 30 years is, like, has actually done it. When Pete Carroll got there, USC had the same facilities it had from like the 60s. And so when everything has gone state-of-the-art with USC where their facilities are really good and the area around there has been, you know, really improved and everything else, I think they feel like they have everything they need to – they should dominate that, that conference. Let me tell you something. If buildings won football games, Northwestern would not be one and two right now with losses to Duke and Akron. <laughs> they opened that $270 million yeah, facility with all that fanfare. Too. What do they have to show for it right now? Northwestern's not USC. Come I know. On. I know. But, um, um, the point is, I don't think it's a guarantee that if you fire Clay Helton, the next guy will come in and win national No, and, that's, and that is the problem. Like, if you're USC, and this was the issue that got them, that got, that had got Clay Helton the job in the first place. USC has, has really botched a lot of hires. They were lucky that Pete Carroll turned out. He was, you know, as well as he did, he was the fifth choice, I think, back then. They ended up with Lane. Then they ended up with Sark, of all people. And then, you know, they got Clay Helton, who, you know, our friend Ryan Abraham from USCfootball.com would say is like, you basically were competing against probably Memphis for for Clay, and so who would they go get? I don't know. I mean, that's that's a that's a challenge. I mean, do they go and say, all right, we're going to try to hire James Franklin away from Penn State? I mean, you know, you start looking at the list of guys who are top, you know, top ten, top fifteen coaches. There's not a lot of guys who I think are going to like change jobs. But and I think that's the question is like, who could you pull away if you're going to fire? Clay Helton, you better have somebody ready in hand that you know is a big upgrade who's well, not and like... and there's also one other big factor here. Is Lynn Swan willing to do what um, Mike Garrett and Pat Hayden were not and actually go outside the quote-unquote USC family? Because that's been as, uh, as big an issue as, as anything, is that they've been refused to hire anybody who wasn't either a USC guy or worked for Pete Carroll. So... I'm going to do a quick history lesson here, and then we're going to move on. But to my point, uh, so John Robinson did have a great run from 1976 to 1982, won national titles. Now, since then, here's what happened after that. So we're talking about in the last 35 years. Ted Tolner, 26-20-1, fired. Uh, Larry Smith, 44-25-3, 87-92. Then John Robinson comes back for five years. Goes to a Rose Bowl with Keyshawn Johnson and is fired in, within five years. Then Paul Hackett, maybe the worst USC coach in recent memory. Then the great Pete Carroll run, Kiffin, Ogeron, Helton. Sorry, could you argue Ogeron's been the best USC coach since Pete Carroll? Six and two. <laughs> Six and two. Won 80% of his games. Yeah, because he was probably the most focused of the other ones. I mean, Lane was not ready for that job. Sark was a mess. Clay didn't have as much experience. Look, Clay, I mean, let's wait. Clay Helton won a Rose Bowl, won the Pac-12 title. He did, he did. I mean... I do think he gets shortchanged. No doubt he gets shortchanged. Again, to me, the fact is, because Clay Helton had no track record, because they were not happy when they hired him, even how they hired him, they hired him, like, right after a big win and before he would lose to to Stanford in the Pac-12 conference title game, and then... They'd lose, I think, to Nebraska or Wisconsin or whoever. I guess it was Wisconsin they played in the bowl game. And so I think they really scrambled, you know, just really just scrambled to get him in there. People were not happy with the hire. or A lot of people were not. And they've had to try to warm up to the hire. And I'm not sure they ever did. And so there's almost like they're waiting for him to, to, to not succeed. And I think they're going to 
they're probably ultimately going to get what they want. Yeah, I mean, look, based on the first three games, they could have just an absolutely terrible season, and it's not really much of a decision. He would be gone. But if he does rebound, much like he did two years ago, but not Rose Bowl rebound, like eight and four rebound, you'll have a choice. Either you give him another year, see how it plays out. But if you do that, I'm telling you, a lot of empty seats at the Coliseum. We have one of the best questions in recent mailbag history right now, and I want to know the answer myself. This is from James Birdsong. Hey, Bruce, this is for you. On the latest podcast of Stanford, Steve, and the Bear, Andy Staples said you frequently order turkey burgers when you dine together and in turn are frequently <laughs> let down by them as well. Is this a health health-conscious choice or do you just have a thing for turkey burgers? Uh, I do like turkey burgers. I love bison burgers if I can get them. Andy's right. Andy's example, though, is not altogether like it's 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 legit. But the thing I, I more than kick myself, there was a place I remember eating at in Columbus where I was like known for this. And I'm like, well, let me get this without or whatever, just to try to keep it as healthy as possible. And I regret that. So Andy's point is true. You can get good turkey burgers. I, I've seen his Twitter rants about that. It, it all can't be like everything can't just because it just because it tastes a little better in bacon fat doesn't mean you should always have the bacon fat i've seen um, it i've seen it both ways with you i've seen it where you ordered something like a turkey burger and regret it and i've also seen where you go for the ribs like some yeah. filler filling thing and then really regret that i'm, I'm trying to uh just to feel as healthy as possible some people may disagree with me on this, but I'm a big believer in stick with what stick with what you know or stick with what you know you like. And with you, I mean, if I were you, I would just go chicken parm nine times out of ten. You know, that's your bread and butter. That's your staple. That's your go-to. Why be adventurous? No, you're right. Look, <laughs> we, we all. I, I think if you operate from the prism of I just want to eat the best thing possible, no matter how I may feel the next morning or that later that night. You know, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not 15 years old. I can't do that anymore. I just, uh, you know. I just worry because you're going to all these exotic locales. You were in Lubbock last week. I mean, you're going to be in a really good eating town this weekend, though, so I'm not too worried. But where are you going the week after? Uh, the week after, we have BYU at Washington up in Seattle. Great interesting, city. Interesting. Great. I saw that uh, Fox had picked up uh, Michigan at Northwestern, and I thought for a second maybe you were going to be that is pilgrimage. that is Gus and Joel who have that game. By the way, we had a gr- uh, we had a great restaurant in Lubbock, and I don't remember the name of it. That's but, a steakhouse. Uh, it really wasn't a re- uh, uh, just a it was a steakhouse, but there was a lot of other options on it. It was very good. Just to uh, to put a postscript on your your Tua versus Joe Namath, and why you didn't think Joe Namath was all that special. I texted a former colleague of mine who played in the 60s and was also a quarterback. And I asked him about Joe Namath's talent. And he said uh, Joe Namath had a pure release and ridiculous arm talent. I asked him, great feet, great arm. And he wrote back, unreal, till he hurt his knee. He was special. Oh, I'm sure he was. He went on to have a great NFL career and win a Super Bowl. But um, Tua is more special. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Stockton Rockets, Stu, as a faithful listener, Akron gets a shout-out for the big win. Go, Mac. I'll give Akron that shout-out, but there's another one. And Terry Bowden, by the way, remember we talked about that with Tim Brando. I mean, he's been there since 2012 now, and they beat a Big Ten. This is maybe the craziest stat of the whole weekend. That win at Northwestern was Akron's first win over a Big Ten school since 1894, 
And the craziest part of that is that the Big Ten didn't even form for two years after that. So I, I, I will give the biggest shout out in the world to, wait, aren't, isn't Akron the Zips? Why is he they signing are. at Stockton Rocket? Maybe he's from Stockton, California. Maybe he's a Toledo fan who just wants to give Akron no, some I props. I, I don't know. But I have a, can we do our shout outs now? Yeah. Okay, so I want to give my shout out. Actually, you got one? Go ahead. Yeah, my shout out is, a, is more of a really personal one. So before our game in Lubbock this weekend, usually I'll talk to the officiating crew for a minute or so. And uh, one of the officials came over and, and told me about one of their colleagues, uh, Todd Reese. This was an AAC officiating crew. And right before the season, Todd was diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. Uh, he is in Baltimore. I met, uh, actually flew back and happened to sit next to another member of the crew. Uh, and, and a small world element, this, this man grew up in the Shreveport area and went to Brando's church of all, you know, he's connected to him of all people. But, um, but Todd, uh, is in Baltimore and they just wanted to tell him on the broadcast, which we were unable, unfortunately to get it in just because the game went so fast. But, uh, that they're thinking of him and fighting with him. And I think that a lot of times, uh, you know, when we're watching the game, we forget that, that how, how much these guys, you know, they have regular jobs during the week and then they're flying on in on Friday. And, you know, as I sat next to this guy on the plane, he was breaking down video of the game he had, you know, first I thought he was an NFL scout. I didn't know what he was doing. Like I'm sitting there watching it and uh, it just shows their dedication to the game. And so shout out to Todd Reese and his crew I hope uh, I hope Todd's fight goes goes well against pancreatic cancer. Wow, I don't I don't really know how to follow that up. I don't have I just have like the regular generic shout out to a coach who won a big game. Okay, and that would be David Beatty of the Kansas Jayhawks, who I talked to Sunday. After all they've been through the last few years of just being such an such a punchline, including the first game of this season, back to back wins for first time since '09, and not just wins like. They went out and crushed Rutgers. They have forced 12 turnovers over the last two weeks. And I think what I appreciate most about that is they haven't created a turnover chain or chainsaw or backpack or any of these other... I'm just so over it. That bit is done. But yes, they clobbered Rutgers. They got a heck of a freshman running back in Puka Williams. And what do you think? Think they can get to a bowl game? Not yet, but I think they can get to four wins. How about that? I would, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll go so far as to say five. They get to five wins. Three big okay. 12 wins. So if they get five wins, David Beatty's keeping that job. Which he certainly would be entitled to. Yeah, look, he inherited a horrible situation from Charlie Weiss, and they've recruited well. And I know people around that program really like him a lot, and he's done a lot of the right things. It's just, you know, I, I did one of their games, I think it might have been his first year, and it was like they were... There's a great line Fran Fraschilla once said at the NBA draft, Fran being the uh, the guru of all things international players, was like, he's a year away from being a year away. I think that uh, Kansas football at the time was like a year away from even thinking about being competitive. And I think when people saw them upset Texas a couple of years ago and then kind of backslide, this kind of, sh- this kind of was a panic mode and maybe they're a little better than we thought. As he said, he, you know, the biggest thing is they have seniors now. You know, as they went through this complete and utter rebuild that the mess that Charlie Weiss left would take by taking all the JUCO kids, you know, they would have years where they only had seven scholarship seniors. They got 25. Um, some of them are going to be key impact players on defense. Now you got the playmaker running back. Four or five wins, probably. 
is where it's headed. But that's uh, that's a lot more than the last few years. Yeah, and if you if you guys want more on just what a rebuild KU was, check out uh, Google Max Olson's story on the Athletic. He did a really good deep dive into the sewer that basically he jumped into. One of to, the most uh, one of the most popular stories we've ever written or we've ever published was that story on how Kansas football got into the situation it is, which it always fascinates me to see which which things resonate that you wouldn't necessarily expect. And that was a really good story. You're right. People should go find it. He also did a really, you know, you did the Troy Neil Brown book club. Mm-hmm. Max went behind the scenes with Troy not long after that. Troy, obviously, with a big, big win at Nebraska this week. That Neil Brown is just, uh, his stock is, is being elevated that much more. All right. Well, that ends our portion of the Max Olson show. <laughs> As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. We went pretty long this week, but obviously the Erwin Meyer thing uh, on top of a college football weekend gave us a lot to talk about. We'll see you next week. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to The Audible at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. We'd like to thank our producer, Nick Fink, and we'd like to thank Kevin and the Octaves for our intro song, Dangerous. You can download their music on iTunes or Spotify. If you haven't subscribed to The Athletic yet, what are you waiting for? Read both myself and Bruce and all our other great writers there. Go to theathletic.com slash the audible and get 25% off. You can also follow our coverage at the Athletic CFB. You can follow me at SL Mandel. Follow Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB. We'll see you next time. Come on, get over